I invite you to take a Bible and to turn to 1 John chapter 2. Today we are reading verses 18 through 27. And as we make our journey through this letter of John to an early church, we see in this text some Bible buzzwords, some things that are fascinating to inquiring minds, and we see some bedrock truth that God calls us to keep our eyes focused upon. So I invite you now to hear God's word from 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I said that this passage includes some Bible buzzwords, like the last hour, the last days, the end times. That kind of theme is kind of a, a Bible buzzword that people are fascinated with. There's another term in this text, antichrist, and antichrists, plural, and that is another Bible, those are Bible buzzwords as well. There's a lot of interest in those things. There is what I would call a mentality for the marginal. We've talked about this previously, but sometimes we get so caught up in the details of things that we miss the big picture of Scripture. I grew up in a church where end times were not talked about. I'm sure I knew that Jesus had come, that he'd been born and he lived, he died, he rose again. But I don't recall hearing that he would come again in glory. It may have been said, and I just missed it, but I don't recall. And I certainly had never been taught about the end times, eschatology, that fancy theological word that refers to the last days, the end times. And so when I went off to Christian college, and all the other students, it seemed, had a chart that told them what all was going to happen and when and what order and who was who and who all the players were in the program. I was thinking, 
where did you get that? I never saw that in the Bible. I never heard that in the church. But some get so caught up on things like pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial, that they miss the main message of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't important or that we shouldn't try to understand those things, but there are some key truths that God wants us to focus on. And so John writes that children, it is the last hour. What does he mean by that? It seems like you could say, well, John, you kind of missed it there because it's been almost 2,000 years and things are still going on. This letter makes an appeal to its readers and its hearers based on the urgency of the hour. And the statement about this urgency is repeated for emphasis. Verse 18 begins with a statement that it is the last hour. It goes on to say that the presence of many antichrists is evidence that it is the last hour. So ever since the coming of Christ, his life and death and resurrection, we have been living in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 says that in former times, God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so ever since Jesus came, ever since he took on human flesh, we have been living in the last days, the last hour, if you will. Now, John may be referring to the latter part of those last days. We're not sure what exactly he meant. But the point is that Jesus has initiated the last days, the last hour. And so he will one day come again and all things will be consummated in him. So there was initiation of the last days. There will be a consummation of the last days when Jesus returns in power and glory. Now, if that was true when this letter was written, that it was the last hour, who can doubt that the terrible evils that we see in the world today are evidence that it is the last hour? Someone may object and say that since this letter was written about 2,000 years ago and Jesus has not yet returned, it shows that that statement is not true. It can't be the last hour, John, because it hasn't happened 2,000 years later. But the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as 1,000 years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to re should reach repentance. So the fact that this last hour seems slow does not nullify the truth of the statement. It is the last hour. We are living in the last days, but God's timetable is not the same as ours. And God is in mercy allowing time to repent time to turn from sin and turn to God. Time to turn from reliance on self to reliance on Christ. So the emphasis on the last hour indicates that an urgent response is required. There is an urgency to this truth about Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have been unable to attend a wedding because you did not respond by the deadline. 
I don't know if this happens in your house, but often it's happened in ours. You get these wedding invitations weeks, months ahead of the wedding. RSVP by this certain date. You set it aside on the telephone table or maybe on a um, poster or bulletin board. And then you don't pay attention to it and you think, oh, there's a wedding coming up. I wonder when we were supposed to get our reservation in. And you go and you find the invitation and you discover, oh, last week. Maybe we'll send it in and they'll be gracious and let us come. Well, I read of a woman who was the soloist at a wedding, but she failed to return her reservation card for the wedding reception, which was to be held at a very ritzy location. And she was looking forward to the ambiance and the dinner but when she arrived and her name was not on the guest list, the maitre d' said, I'm, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm not allowed to let you in. And she explained that, well, she was the soloist at the wedding just a little bit earlier, and she was still not admitted to the wedding feast. Jesus said it would be like that, that there would be many in that situation when he returns. They have received an invitation, but they've not responded. They've been busy with other things too busy to respond to Jesus and his lordship. Perhaps they're presuming upon the mercy of Jesus that they'll be admitted to the wedding feast even though they failed to respond to him. Perhaps they're relying on what they've done in the past to gain themselves admittance. But Jesus says that we must respond affirmatively to him. We must treat him as the treasure that he is if we want to enjoy eternal life with him. If we keep putting him off in favor of other things, he will honor our request. We may have other things, but we will not have him. You may have loved ones in your life and you've tried to share the gospel with them and tried to help them understand the urgency of the situation, that life and death are at stake. And maybe they'll say, well, you know, Jesus is okay for you, or maybe someday I'll make a commitment to Christ, but not right now. John says it's the last hour. There's urgency to the situation. And so I want to make the urgency as clear as I can. We don't know how long we have. We have this moment. We have this breath, but we don't know if we will have another. About nine years ago, February 10th, 2010, the oncologist who was working with my dad saw no evidence to suggest that my dad should be admitted to hospice care. In other words, he said, I don't see anything that indicates it's going to be in the next 18 months. But a little more than a month later, on a Tuesday morning, March 23rd, my dad was meeting with the hospice doctor for the first time to discuss hospice care. The next evening, my dad was dead. If you knew that your time was that short, would it make a difference? How would your life be different? What would you stop and what would you start? How would your relationships be different? Would you continue to hold on to that grudge? How would your values and priorities be changed? How would your use of time and money be different? John says, this is the last hour. And in doing that, 
God is giving us a merciful wake-up call to let us know how short this life is and the importance of preparing for eternity. The Bible says it is the last hour. We have it on the authority of God's word that the time is short, so don't wait to respond to Christ. This is the last hour, and therefore we see that Antichrists have come. Because they've come, we know it's the last hour because we, Jesus told, taught his disciples that in the end times, there would be false Christs who would arise. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about the man of lawlessness. In this letter of John, he speaks of Antichrist and Antichrists, singular and plural. And he says that there. And basically what he's saying is that there is and always has been opposition to the truth of Jesus. One day, there will be one who will so fully fulfill opposition to Christ that he will be seen as the Antichrist, capital A, uppercase A. But in the meantime, we are surrounded by Antichrists, lowercase a, plural, who are opposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. They're opposed to who he is. They're opposed to what he's about. And so we shouldn't be surprised at this opposition that we experience in the world. There is and always has been opposition to the truth of Jesus. But with some of these things about the last hour and Antichrist, there can be a lot of focus on the marginal things. There are some who have been caught up in trying to identify who the Antichrist is, and for years people thought it might be Hitler. Others have identified the Antichrist as a supercomputer in Europe, or political or religious leaders currently in power or in the past. There's been a fascination with who the the Antichrist is, but the focus of this text is not the Antichrist singular, but these Antichrists, plural, who were in and around the church and who went out from the church, who were opposing the truth of Jesus and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so John writes that they went out for a purpose, a divine purpose, and God's purpose in having them go out, was to show, to make it plain that they were not of God's people. Now, not all who leave a local church have left the faith. In a consumer culture, people are often looking for different programs, different Um, emphases in different churches, and so they may leave a church for any variety of reasons. There are often times when people will get their feelings hurt, and they'll leave because of that. So not everyone who leaves a local church has left the faith, but some who have left were not of us. And what does that mean? They were not of us. There's some potential meanings that we could assign to that phrase, they were not of us. One, we could say that they were Christians, but they're not anymore. Two, they were never really followers of Christ. Or three, 
they were and are followers of Christ, but they did their denial is not as bad as it seems. I would come down on number two. They were never really converted. They were false converts. They were maybe in the church, around the church. And we see this from time to time. People who are part of a local church, they may have been baptized. They may have been received as members. They may have confessed words with their mouth but never had a conversion of their heart by God's grace. And so it's not our responsibility or our prerogative to declare an eternal destiny about someone else or ourselves for that matter. And so you and I can't say about someone else that they were never saved, they'll never be saved. That's something that's beyond us. Only God can make that kind of statement. And so we're not called in the church to be heresy hunters, to be sniffing around other people and looking for heresy all the time. But in the church, we are called to be wise, to be discerning, and to lovingly correct false teaching, false belief, wrong practice. We're called to do that in love, speaking the truth in love. So we cannot declare an eternal destiny, but we must inspect the fruit of others' lives? Do we see the fruit of the Spirit? Do we see a, a confession of Jesus Christ, Jesus as the Christ, which is what John writes here? God knows and makes clear those who are his own, and when some go out, God makes it clear that they were never part of us. They may have been in and around the fellowship, but they were never really part of us. I give some examples of this that we could look to throughout church history and in personal experience in various churches. Those of us who have been a part of Berlin Presbyterian Church were previously part of a, a different denomination that veered away from the teaching of Scripture on essential points of doctrine, such as the uniqueness of Jesus, that he alone is God in the flesh, that he's fully God and fully human, and the way of salvation, that he is the only way of salvation, that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and the authority of the Bible. So the denomination that we were formerly a part of had veered away from the teaching of Scripture on important points like that, and the result of it was that there were symptomatic kind of expressions dealing with current cultural issues like human sexuality and the definition of marriage. So when you forsake the foundational truths of Jesus Christ and who he is, it always results in false doctrine in other areas in practice. You don't have to look too far from today's news to see that the Methodist church, Methodists from around the world are meeting in St. Louis to talk about some of these same issues. In some denominations, they talk about dialogue between Muslims and Jews and Christians rather than evangelism of Christian, Christians evangelizing Jews and Muslims. And what they might say is, well, Jesus is our way of salvation, but our Jewish brothers and our Muslim brothers and sisters, they have their own way. And some, even in evangelical churches, will say things like, 
Well, Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, must recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and believe on Jesus in order to be saved. But Jews were given a covenant long ago, and so God has two covenants, a dual covenant, and that Jews don't need to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They're saved a different way. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so we see on these macro levels in church denominations that denominations have veered away from the truth. They have gone out from us when we left the denomination, when we were going to be no longer associated with the denomination that we were formerly part of. Some of the leaders in that church said, we don't want you to leave. And our response to them was, we aren't leaving The denomination has left Jesus Christ. So there are those macro levels, big picture churches and denominations where some have gone out from the faith. There are also smaller incidences, individual persons where we could identify things like that. And I think of a church that I was at when I was in seminary. I was a seminary intern I was serving this church, a little church in Pasadena, California, and there was a woman in this congregation. She was a gracious, classy woman from the South. She had all the Southern mannerisms and hospitality, and she was put together, as they say, always dressed very classy, but she couldn't speak above a whisper. And I was curious about why that was, because there was no physiological reason that she couldn't speak like more than this. And as it came to know her and find out her story, she indicated that she, a number of years ago, had started reading about reincarnation. And she believed that she was, had lived a past life. She believed that she had been a Puritan woman who was expelled from the church and died a horrible death, and she was afraid it was going to happen to her again in this life. And I believe that she was oppressed by an evil spirit who had caused her to believe doctrines of demons. And this oppressive spirit, I believe, was having a physical manifestation in that she could not speak above a whisper. A seminary classmate of mine who was also an intern at the church and I went to meet with this woman and we talked to her about the teaching of scripture related to how we are to live and what is true about our life, what Mark prayed earlier this morning from Hebrews, that it is appointed to all that we die once and then then comes the judgment. So we were explaining to her that no, we don't, we're not reincarnated. We haven't lived past lives. You don't have to be afraid of that. You can be free from this fear and she would not receive it. And she eventually left the church. Then from Pasadena, California, I came to Delaware, Ohio, and I was pastoring a church there, and shortly after I got there, there was a men's retreat. We were going on a fishing trip up to Lake Erie, Middle Bass Island, and so there were a bunch of guys, and we got there, got settled into the the house on Middle Bass, and as I opened my luggage that night, I discovered There was a pornographic magazine in my luggage, and I didn't know where it came from. Turns out, one of the men who held a leadership position in the church thought it would be funny to put something like that in my luggage and see what kind of response it would get. 
he wasn't specifically denying that Jesus is the Christ, but by his actions, he was living as an antichrist, as the spirit of antichrist in my life, because he couldn't have known that when I was in seventh grade and I was invited over to my friend's house, this friend of mine was a gifted artist, and he could draw great pictures of muscle cars, like 70s vintage Plymouth Barracuda and Mustangs and Camaros. And so I was going over to look at some of his artwork and his drawings. Well, his dad happened to work for the post office, and his dad had accumulated, through confiscation, I presume, a collection of pornography that was so vile that it was illegal even at that time. And without asking to see it, suddenly it was placed before me, and I wish that I had never seen those images that I saw. Of course, now it's a lot more prevalent on phones and screens of all different kinds, but that was antichrist. For him to place that in my luggage, to put that before me and to dredge up all those old memories. This person who had done it, then later on left his wife, began living with another woman, And so as a pastor, I went to talk with him about what was going on, and he still told me these things. He said, you know, God understands our situation, and he wants us to be happy. At face value, both of those statements are true. Yes, God understands your situation and my situation, and he wants us to be happy. But as the old hymn says, There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So this person eventually left the church because he didn't want to be called to trust and follow Jesus Christ as Lord. So in his actions, he was denying Jesus as the Christ. One final illustration. Um, Another situation in that first church that I served, there was a woman who called after we had, our family had been on a vacation to Colorado and she wanted to talk to me about being in the mountains and what kind of spiritual experience I had in the mountains. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting and what's she talking about? And turns out she'd gotten caught up in new age things and she was uh, into trans-channeling, communicating with the spirit world. And she was wanting, she was so excited about these things she was studying and learning that she wanted to lead a women's Bible study at the church. And so, of course, I said, sure, yeah, we want that. No, I said, I'm sorry, that cannot happen, and it will not happen. And she didn't like that answer. And so, as Matthew 18 says, you take someone else with you. I took one of our elders. We went back, met with her and her husband. We explained that this will not happen, and you are in spiritual danger if you continue in this way. Well, she continued, and she and her husband left the church. They went out from us to show that they were not part of us. But God has given an anointing. The anointing by the Holy One gives true knowledge. So Jesus is the Holy One of God. We know that from John 6. You are the Holy One of God. And even in the Gospels, in Matthew um, A demon spoke to Jesus and said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
So Jesus is the Holy One. And so in verse 20, when it says, you have been anointed by the Holy One, I believe what it's saying is that Jesus has anointed you. He's anointed you with the Holy Spirit. And that anointing with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us when we're born again. And the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to welcome God's word as truth. And so that anointing with the Holy Spirit, enabling us to understand and welcome the truth of God in Scripture, teaches us, gives us the knowledge that we need. Verse 20, you all have knowledge because you've been anointed by the Holy One. In verse 27, it says, his anointing teaches you about everything. Now, that's not saying that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are omniscient, that we know all things. I believe what it's saying is that you know all you need to know about Jesus and about salvation. Jesus is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God. You can rest in him and have eternal life. So verse 21, you know the truth and no lie is of the truth. If you know Jesus, you know the truth. If you know what is true, you'll not be deceived by a counterfeit. And many of you know that I'm a twin. And some asks, ask, well, are you identical? And a doctor years ago told my mom that we were fraternal, not identical. But those of you who know us know that we look more alike than some identical twins. So we might be. We haven't had a DNA test. Might do that someday. But it was a pleasant and joyous surprise when my, bro my brother and I arrived this morning and we're both wearing dark plaid shirts and khaki pants and standing next to each other. And so you might look there, especially if you're a first-time guest, and think, which one is which? Is this the real one? Will the real Rick Negley please stand up? <laughs> if you know what is true, you won't be deceived by a counterfeit. I'm holding in my hand a $2 bill, not a $3 bill. So if you, it was a $3 bill, you could be alerted right away that it's counterfeit. But it's a $2 bill, but how do you know if it's counterfeit or genuine? From where you're sitting, you might not be able to tell. But my dad was a banker when I was growing up, and he taught me when you're looking at money, currency, there's some things you need to look for. Now, of course, currency has changed with all the new technology printing. But in these days, this was a 76 vintage, uncirculated. And he said there are fibers in the paper, red and blue fibers. You look for those because counterfeiters can't duplicate that. And then he said all these fine lines in the artwork and in the face on the dollar bill, you look for that because counterfeiters can't duplicate that. And then you look at the serial number. If they're all the same, you might have a problem. This wasn't a unique serial number, so I'm pretty sure it's authentic. There was a man who wanted to become an expert in jade, and so he paid for lessons to become an expert in jade. And first lesson he went to, and he sat down in the lab, the, sat down at a table. The instructor put a piece of fine jade in front of him, said, here, examine it, study it. Left him an hour later, came back, okay, that's all for today, come back next week. Same thing the next week, and the third week. By this time, the guy is getting really frustrated. He said, I'm bringing my attorney. I've paid you good money to teach me to be an expert in jade, and you just keep putting stuff out here, and today you've put stuff out here, and anybody can tell that this is fake. 
He had studied the genuine article enough that he was able to recognize a counterfeit. And so if you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, you recognize that he is fully God, fully human, that he's God in the flesh, he is unique as the only savior of the world, you won't be deceived by a counterfeit. You don't have to fear. The liar denies that Jesus is the Christ, namely that he's God in the flesh, that he's come. And in John's day, apparently what they were saying was, well, Jesus might appear to be man, but not, he's not really. He just appears that way. He doesn't really have human flesh. And some were probably saying that when he was baptized, the spirit came upon him and he became the Christ. And before he died on the cross, the spirit left him. That was a false teaching. They were denying that Jesus is the Christ who took on human flesh once and for all and now has a glorified human body. The liar denies that Jesus is the Christ and the Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. Well, you might say, how can that be? He denied denied the Son, denied something true about the Son, But if you deny something true about the Son, you're denying the Father as well. If you're saying Jesus isn't the Son of God, then you're denying the Father. You're saying that God the Father doesn't have a Son. So no one who denies the Father, or no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So the question for you and for me today is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? Is he... Lord and God, is he your supreme treasure? The Athenians spent their time in nothing other than seeking out, listening to, and telling what was new. And that's been the case since the garden. The serpent came to Adam and Eve and said, here's something new. You know, God is holding back from you. You can't really trust God to be all in for you. The Athenians were interested in whatever is new, and these antichrists were offering something new. Jesus isn't really God. We've got a new teaching for you. And John is saying, no, you have the anointing. You've been anointed by the Holy One with the Holy Spirit so that you can understand and trust in God's word. You don't need anyone else to teach you. So... He says, in effect, do not swerve from the faith. Don't go after something new. In this series on 1 John, we've talked about a ditch on either side of the road. There's the pool of pride on one side. There's the depths of despair on the other side. We want to walk straight towards Jesus Christ. Keep our eyes fixed upon him. And so John writes in verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What did you hear from the beginning? You heard that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's God in human flesh. Let that truth abide in you, that he has risen from the dead, that he died for your sins, that he paid the price so that we can be forgiven. Let that truth abide in you. Kenneth Bailey is a gifted, was a gifted uh, New Testament professor. He taught in the Middle East, and he taught students from many different countries and cultures. And what the interesting thing was with these students from different countries and cultures, they had many of the same shared stories. They had these oral traditions before stories were written down. You know, in America, if it's important, you get it in writing. In other cultures around the world, and even in the ancient Near East, in the times of the Bible, if it was important, you didn't write it down. You repeated it. You told the stories orally. 
And Kenneth Bailey said that these students all knew the same stories, and they could tell them with one another in a common language. And if they, and they had freedom to embellish some points, but there were certain things that could not be changed, and all of them knew what had to be kept the same. And so if someone changed something that was not to be changed, they would all rise up against them and say, that's not the way we heard it. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If someone comes to you and says, here, we got something new for you. Jesus isn't really who you think he is. Rise up and say, that's not the way we heard it. You likely have had people come and knock on your door like we have. And one time it was a, a woman from West Africa. And she was telling us that, not us, telling my wife, who later told me, that um, she grew up in a Presbyterian church in West Africa. But she said, I never knew God's name. And these people who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses, they told me that God's name is Jehovah. And so now I'm with them. She went out to show that she wasn't part of us. When someone comes and says, we've got something new, you say, that's not the way we heard it. We heard it from Jesus Christ. We heard it from his apostles. When you swerve away from the truth, when what you swerve away from what you've been taught, it's painful, and it will cost you even eternal life. This past Monday, I was getting ready to come over to the church. Lee and I meet on Monday mornings to talk about the text of scripture for the next Sunday. And I was getting ready to come over a little before nine o'clock. And I looked out on the porch and saw some fluffy snowflakes on the top step and didn't think anything of it. Got my bag, computer, headed out the door, took one step and my feet went out from under me. By the grace of God, I didn't land on my neck or my head on the concrete because that could have been really awful. But I must have caught myself with my left hand pressed down on my index finger and my wrist because my wrist feels like it's sprained. I can bend everything and I was wondering if I'd be able to play the guitar, but thankfully I was able to do that. I'm quite sure nothing's broken, but it's tender. It's sore. It was painful. My parents told me when I was growing up, look out for the slippery spots. Watch out for the ice. And I didn't pay attention to what I'd been heard, what I'd heard from the beginning. And it was painful. In a more serious way, if we don't pay attention to what we've heard from the beginning about Jesus Christ, it will cost us eternal life. Verse 25 says, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. All of God's promises are trustworthy. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. God has a perfect track record. He's never failed to fulfill one of his promises. You can count on his promises being fulfilled. The promise of eternal life is secure because of Jesus. And so this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you can know eternal life today and forever and ever. And so one final implication. Since Jesus has anointed us, the Holy One has anointed us with his Holy Spirit and he's given us his word, we don't have to fear. You hear about Antichrist coming, you hear about opposition coming, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear persecution. You don't have to fear being led astray. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. We'll come to that in a few weeks, the Lord willing. What's interesting, John writes this. And in his gospel, he records the Last Supper, where he and 
Jesus and the other disciples were together. And when they ate in those days, in Jewish tradition, they would have a low table, probably a U-shaped, and they would have their feet away from the table and they'd lean on their left arm on a low table so that they could reach with their right hand to take food and drink. And we know that from John's accounting of it that John was on one side of Jesus because when Jesus talked about being betrayed, Peter, who's on the other side of John, says to John, ask him who it is. And Jesus said, it's the one who's next to me who's dipping with me. And so on the other side of Jesus was Judas who betrayed him. So Jesus has experienced this. John has experienced this. Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed, but he will never betray you. On Friday, my wife and I and Hope, our daughter, went to a a funeral of a 65-year-old man who we'd known years ago. And I was speaking to his widow and to his son and his daughter, and told them that whenever I was with Gary, I always felt like I had his full attention, that he was zeroed in on me. He, he wasn't distracted by anything else, that he, I always had his full attention. And I just felt led to say to that widow and to her son and to her daughter that you have the Father's full attention. You have the full attention of Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. He has his eyes on you. You don't have to fear Antichrist's Antichrist will come, antichrists have come, but you don't have to fear because God has given you an anointing and anointed by the Holy One, you all have knowledge. Let's rest in that truth. And as we conclude our time of worship, we're going to sing a song that says, it is well. There's a refrain in that song that says, my eyes are on you. So I encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep believing what you've heard from the beginning and rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son into the world who is fully God and fully human, who is the Christ, the Messiah, who is the only way of salvation, and that by your grace you have opened our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And you've called us to remind us that this is the last hour, that there is urgency in this message of responding to Jesus that life and death are at stake, that eternal life is offered to all who will believe and receive Jesus as Messiah and Christ. And so, Lord, may no one leave here today without knowing him who is to know him as life eternal. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.